What we learned over time is that, especially with products that go to a later stage, that are more mature, you need to have somebody with a stronger technology focus mm -hmm. also leading uh, the product uh, lifecycle. Mm -hmm. So therefore, we have now a dual leadership for products mm -hmm. where we have a uh, product owner, we call it an our side business lead, but it's mm -hmm. basically a product owner. And uh, we have a tech lead. And mm -hmm. both together build the dual uh, leadership of mm -hmm. the product, which both define uh, uh, basically the prioritization on the backlog, which consists on the one hand on uh, mm -hmm. of business features and on the other hand also of uh, kind of simple mm -hmm. techno technology-related uh, initiatives. Project A Podcast. So welcome to a new uh, episode of the Project A podcast. Um, today um, I have the pleasure to welcome uh, Daniel Gibner from Picnic, CTO there, um, as my as my guest today. Um, welcome, Daniel. Thanks for having um, me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, and um, it would be awesome if you could give us a short introduction of what you're doing, what Picnic is doing. Um, if people may not, not know it yet, um, would be great to, to get an idea of that. Thanks. Uh, let me get started. So I'm Daniel, City of Picnic, and we have a very simple mission. We want to make grocery shopping simple, fun and affordable. We started this, this as an online supermarket in 2015 in Netherlands, in a small city close to Amsterdam, where we started in a pilot in uh, 2015 in Amersfoort. And then we rolled it out first in Netherlands and recently also launched in Germany, where we are now active in 10 cities in Germany and 80 cities in Netherlands. Mm -hmm. Great. And uh, what is your, your position at Project, at Project A, I'm actually saying? <laughs> so at Picnic, of course. Um, so what are you doing there? What are you responsible for? Yes. So I'm CTO, which is actually a role that evolved quite a bit over time. So uh, I started initially as a lead developer, moved more in a lead architect role, and now I'm overseeing a team of a little bit more than 70 engineers, mm -hmm. which actually uh, uh, are organized around the products. And then uh, we have uh, this clustered in the consumer products, mm -hmm. in supply chain products and enabling products. Yeah. And um, if you actually see the mission of, of Picnic itself, um, what does it mean for you? Do, do you, for yourself, have a personal mission that you um, are especially taking care of? Or um, how is that then contributing to the overall mission of Picnic? The business mission is uh, something what we break down to the technology mission. Okay. So the business mission or the, our business proposition is delivery all the food that you love with a next day delivery model mm -hmm. at the lowest price, no delivery fee uh, mm -hmm. logistic model. Mm -hmm. And this one uh, we simply break down into our different uh, different products where we mm -hmm. have a consumer product, a shopping mm -hmm. product where consumers can buy the products, but also a buying a solution. So where we buy uh, products from suppliers, where we have a warehouse management solution, where we fulfill everything in our warehouses up to the point where we plan and where we uh, actually operate the routes to customers. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and um, you already said that you're responsible for 70 engineers, roughly. Um, that's already some kind of larger number. Um, Uh, how do you actually manage these teams? How do you do you organize that? Um, I, I mean, I know the answer already because you talked about it in the drive to to Project A office yeah. so far already. But but it would be great to deliberate on that a bit. Yes. So. In the same way as uh, the team grew, uh, also the organization grew quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking back in uh, 2015, uh, where the entire picnic uh, organization was just 30 people and we had around 10, uh, 10 engineers, 
Then uh, it was pretty simple. These were just uh, friends and a family mm-hmm. with whom we built the company the, uh, and the uh, proposition. We were basically one team that uh, built both uh, the front end and the back end proposition. Over time, uh, this grew up to the point where we started to organize ourselves around products. Mm-hmm. So we started first to have a kind of a mobile shopping solution mm-hmm. or mobile shopping product, then uh, a product around our uh, supply chain products and uh, data a data intelligence or data engineering product and an enabling or a platform product. Mm -hmm. And that evolved to the point where we are now, where we have 15 products Mm -hmm. that are uh, organized in three clusters. So the first cluster is uh, the customer or the consumer facing uh, products, Mm -hmm. which is for instance our shopping solution, but also payment, Mm -hmm. customer service, and a a couple of more. Then we have our supply chain uh, products, which is our purchase order management, our warehouse management, Mm -hmm. our route planning system, Mm -hmm. but also the people management. So the people management becomes very important when you grow grow to an organization that in total now is is 3,000 people. So we have 3,000 people that work uh, for us in warehouses Mm -hmm. and in on the street as uh, as runners, or which we call our delivery guys. Mm-hmm. So then uh, also already the, the planning, the rostering, the scheduling uh, becomes a pretty advanced task that we have uh, actually built ourselves a solution. Mm-hmm. And then we have the third cluster, which is uh, platform or any ena- platform solutions enabling products, which is for us basically everything uh, what is kind of shared services or infrastructure mm-hmm. that we use across all the products. Okay, so some kind of platform team actually um, providing s- infrastructure for example so for running some kind of applications or whatever or how could that uh, yes so yeah. we have uh, basically uh, on the platform or the infrastructure science mm-hmm. we have a t- uh, three teams mm-hmm. so one is uh, called a software platform mm-hmm. one is data platform and the other team we call infrastructure and uh, operations mm-hmm. so infrastructure and operations is basically the development side of uh, DevOps yeah, so this yeah. is basically the building DevOps Kubernetes mm-hmm. uh, infrastructure mm-hmm. that all the other product teams are using uh, the software platform is basically all the shared software services that we use mm-hmm. across uh, all our uh, consumer and mm-hmm. uh, supply chain products. And data is basically the pendant or the counterpart to the yeah. software side where we have all the analytic services but also all the uh, data engineering, data science type of uh, functionalities captured yeah. together. Okay, great. So. Um, you said that you actually have um, 15 products team then, then right now. Um, how are these teams organized? I mean, you have the vision, your tech vision as well, um, or mission. Um, uh, how does it break down to a specific product team? So where from do they know what they should do next? Right. So the product teams themselves are organized as cross-functional teams, mm-hmm. uh, where basically you have front and back end and uh, data engineering uh, put together in uh, one single team. Mm-hmm. What is important is that we have actually started in a very classical scrum setup where you mm-hmm. have a product owner, which is basically running uh, uh, the entire uh, product life cycles here. Mm-hmm. What we learned over time is that, especially with products that go to a later stage, that are more mature, you need to have somebody with a stronger technology focus mm-hmm. also leading uh, the product uh, life cycle. Mm-hmm. So therefore, we have now a dual leadership for products mm-hmm. where we have a uh, product owner, we call it an our side business lead, but it's mm-hmm. basically a product owner. And uh, we have a tech lead. And mm-hmm. both together build the dual uh, leadership of mm-hmm. the product, which both define uh, uh, basically the prioritization on the backlog, which consists on the one hand on uh, mm-hmm. of business features and on the other hand also of uh, kind of simple mm-hmm. technical technology-related uh, initiatives. And uh, how have you, have you actually found out that there is time for change going away from a just pure product-based centric to add another leader uh, or another um, person, let's say, uh, for the technical part? Yeah. 
or some kind of indications or a specific point where we say, oh, now we saw that's why we're doing it, now we need to change it? Basically, two things happened. Mm -hmm. uh, on the first thing is uh, we, we, we are very much a data-driven organization mm -hmm. and we also measure quite a bit uh, the velocity on the engineering mm -hmm. side. So what we saw is simply said products as they are growing, as they are getting a more mature, simply a development speed uh, goes down. Mm -hmm. down. So there are lots of kind of different reasons and to some extent this is also expected. But yeah. the other thing is that also engineers simply uh, told us uh, that with having a, a classical product owner in the scrum mm -hmm. way where you say this is the kind of the CEO of the product, mm -hmm. this is just not cool. This is mm -hmm. just not uh, very nice. If you want to run this as a tech, mm -hmm. uh, as a tech organization, as a tech company, you need to have tech on the same level uh, as business yeah, organized. Yeah. And that's the reason why we actually move both uh, business leadership and technology leadership mm -hmm. on the same level uh, for the product. Mm -hmm. So that uh, is from my understanding, so both-sided um, change. So one side, you measured velocity to say, okay, now it's going down. Um, we may should change something, whatever it could be. On the other hand, developers actually said, okay, we are missing that tech part being on the same level like uh, like Absolutely. business. Um, how actually found did you found these developers who are also exposing that and saying oh we have a problem in that so is it uh, how was the process to find that out because from from our perception from my perception it's often the case uh, that you have a mix of development persons uh, or developers um, some of them are more introverted some of them more extroverted of course but um, i would say the majority is maybe more into the introverted uh, section sometimes um, how did you actually created the process that they um, felt encouraged to, to go in that direction. Correct. So we see we see exactly this kind of mix of uh, developer types also on our side. The really interesting part is that, um, is that products where you are more consumer focused, where you have actually uh, a st very strong focus on a consume, the consumer journey, mm -hmm. um, uh, the product owner had a very strong say, but mm -hmm. a developer simply said, well, we have also ideas. We have seen even more apps mm -hmm. than most of our product owners. Mm -hmm. Let us actually be part of the product definition mm -hmm. and the, the road mapping life cycle and not let just the product owner uh, define uh, basically uh, the entire workload and uh, mm -hmm. backlog what, uh, what we are working on. Mm -hmm. So that was very much, a, uh, let's say, a movement mm -hmm. that was driven from our consumer consumer-facing product side. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, for our supply chain, um, uh, the engineers that are working on the supply chain products have been not that unhappy in the old structure for the simple reasons that if you're working on a supply chain product like a warehouse management uh, mm -hmm. system where you have very, very complex uh, processes and the implementations are typically taking a little bit longer, mm -hmm. the process of uh, defi analyzing, defining, identify uh, first identifying the opportunity but then also defining, specifying uh, the user stories is such a complex task that developers are pretty happy that the product owner is taking over this uh, this kind of task yeah, and yeah. Uh, therefore that they can focus on the stuff that they really love mm -hmm. is basically working from a relatively well written specification mm -hmm. towards uh, well-run uh, implementation mm -hmm. so for them uh, that was something where they didn't had an initially such a push mm -hmm. what we wanted to do is that we actually we wanted to uh, make this movement for all products so mm -hmm. both for the consumer facing products but also for the supply chain products mm -hmm. And over time, the supply chain engineers actually learned to enjoy it very much. Okay. So that is uh, kind of one of the learnings or one of the interesting yeah. insights that we got along the journey. They didn't know what they were missing mm -hmm. until the point where they actually had it in their hand. Yeah, okay. So, so uh, that's, that means actually they changed the process from really participating in creating the tickets and specifications. Um, great to hear that they enjoyed it. 
Yeah, because yeah. Um, uh, this would would have been my uh, one of my more uh, next questions. Um, so the product owners, how technical are they? In in I mean, if you are a tech company, yeah. So would I then also have to expect that product owners are really technical as well, not just let's say you you are UX driven um, or customer oriented, but also have a deep technical understanding yeah. of things are connected, yeah. for example. Our story goes even a little bit further back. So indeed, uh, classical product owners are very much UI UX uh, driven uh, uh, persons. Um, so in this world, um, we work with a couple of traditional uh, product owners and what we learned is that for a very ver first version of a, of a product, mm -hmm. that is pretty nice if you work on the more intuitive level, if you yeah. work with, uh, with consumer uh, or customer journeys uh, or customer uh, service, etc. But if you go a little bit further in your uh, product development, if products are maturing, then you need to actually work on a much more quantitative and a much more analytical uh, basis. Mm -hmm. So what we saw there is that the traditional product owners are simply not analytical enough, mm -hmm. which led us to the uh, situation uh, where we simply couldn't take the traditional product owners from the market and yeah, we built yeah. up the, uh, the product owners ourselves. Okay. And uh, the way how we did this is we basically built up the product owners from uh, business analysts or mm -hmm. operational analysts and simply uh, well, worked with them to bring a bit more the product thinking mm -hmm. uh, into uh, their way of working mm -hmm. on top of uh, their analytical skills. Mm -hmm. The real advantage uh, that this movement had for us is that the user stories are actually very well quantified mm -hmm. and analyzed upfront, where you have a very clear definition on uh, some well-defined uh, mm -hmm. KPIs and metrics per mm -hmm. product. What is the expected consumer impact? Mm -hmm. So therefore, uh, the user stories are defining upfront already uh, precisely what can you expect for each kind of product KPI uh, mm -hmm. the, the uh, improvement mm -hmm. then we do the implementation and if we do the rollout mm -hmm. typically in a couple of stages uh, during um, uh, during AB testing mm -hmm. then we can actually also measure is the actual impact mm -hmm. uh, really coinciding with the expected impact. Yeah, um, two questions to that. So the first thing, what kind of metrics are you looking at? Is it some kind of standardized set maybe per product where you say, okay, this is what you want to improve? Um, and the second thing is, um, what do you actually do if you see, okay, um, the expected re or the result that you measure is always um, below the expectations, let's say. So is it something where you say, oh, we need to somewhat change our process of our analytical thinking? How, how does that work? Yeah. So. So there are basically two things uh, that, uh, that are very important mm -hmm. here. On the one hand is um, if you're building up an expected um, an expectation profile for an, mm -hmm. uh, uh, for an initiative or a new uh, user story, mm -hmm. then uh, what we're looking into is that each user story or initiative has a significant contribution on at least one uh, KPI. Mm -hmm. So the KPIs are defined per product, to mm -hmm. answer your very okay. first question. And um, uh, what we are looking for is that at least on one KPI you have a significant improvement. Mm -hmm. The thing, why, uh, the reason why we are looking for this is that what we what we learned is basically on the KPIs you have kind of marginal improvements which are typically then in level two, three, five percent, yeah. where you have such a high degree of uncertainty on uh, what is the actual outcome yeah. that even if you expect two or three percent improvements, it can be plus two percent or minus two percent. So mm -hmm. basically. Uh, we shouldn't bother too much on this right mm -hmm. KPI. Uh, we should look for a KPI where we actually can improve on at least 5%. Yeah. So that is something what we initially do. The second one is uh, the aspect where, you, um, where we look exposed to which extent are your stories actually materializing uh, on the improvement. This is part of our product retrospective uh, okay. cycle. 
So what we do is a, a classical scrum retrospective, mm -hmm. uh, usually for each sprint or for each other sprint. What we do is uh, we do also a product retrospective mm -hmm. where we look then typically more in the ranges of every four or six or eight mm -hmm. weeks, how well are actually business KPIs improving according to mm -hmm. the expectation profile that uh, the product owners mm -hmm. have been built up. Okay. Great. Um, can you maybe give some examples of KPIs uh, one product team is looking at? I mean, uh, because probably it's it's the same. So there's a defined set as a set of KPIs um, that should not change over time. Well, they may change, but slowly. Uh, but what would be an example um, where you say, okay, this is something we yeah. will improve by 5% exactly? Let, let me give you a very uh, recent example that we have been working on. Um, so in, uh, in e-commerce, there is uh, typically uh, you go to the shop, you simply put uh, stuff in the basket, at mm -hmm. some point you check out, you have placed the order, and then uh, you have agreed with uh, the retailer on a delivery moment, and then, uh, then you deliver. Mm -hmm. So what is actually in food happening very often, mm -hmm. for the simple reasons that you are ordering uh, not only three items, like mm -hmm. in non-food, you're ordering in normally 30 or 40 or 50 mm -hmm. items, that you forget something. Oh. So the functionality to add something to mm -hmm. an uh, order that you mm -hmm. have placed earlier is a functionality that is you, most retailers, retailers don't offer this. Yeah. And there are logistical reasons for why they don't offer this. Yeah. And that is something what actually quite a few customers have asked us mm -hmm. uh, for this functionality. So this was uh, one of our most requested uh, mm -hmm. consumer requests. We looked a bit into... Um, what could be the consumer impact for this? Yep. So this is, for instance, on the side of uh, retention, but also order frequency. So these are typical yeah, uh, KPIs yep. that we are looking in there. <laughs> uh, so average order value, mm -hmm. retention, um, and frequency. And our initial analysis was not so promising for this feature. That was the reason why we have been a little bit more hesitant yeah. of, uh, first of all, implementing this, because mm -hmm. this is a quite significant development effort. But also the second thing is not too fast uh, rolling, uh, rolling mm -hmm. this out. The simple reason for this is if you have multiple payment uh, iterations, then obviously you have to pay uh, multiple times the payment cost, etc. Yeah. What we now see, and that's uh, the reason why this is a pretty interesting case, is uh, the feature itself uh, has been uh, performing roughly according to expectation um, uh, during the A-B testing, mm -hmm. uh, while when we now rolled it out, a kind of uh, a mass effect uh, popped really? in, yeah. where actually this became a pretty big st uh, story in the media, uh, mm -hmm. that we are one of the first supermarkets that is actually mm -hmm. offering this kind of functionality. That is something what you can't do in other services. Yeah, yeah. So that we had a huge inflow mm -hmm. of uh, new customers for this. That led up to the point mm -hmm. where we actually, during the, um, uh, during the, um, the Easter season, which mm -hmm. is in, uh, always pretty critical in retail, uh, because uh, simply suppliers uh, have more difficulty to, to uh, to supply the, the mm -hmm. right demand. We, we stopped there the rollout of this feature because it became too popular and we yeah, didn't yeah. want to create too much risk yeah, yeah. by just rolling out a feature which becomes too popular. So therefore <laughs> we just, uh, we roll it out, but let's say we do the remaining rollout after after Easter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, what I find really interesting is that actually the A-B test didn't show that uh, before. Yeah? So yeah. that's saying, okay, it's meeting our expectations, but uh, uh, it's quite interesting to see that if we then I mean, the question is, what would have happened if we actually say, oh, it's not meeting our expectation, we roll back, we don't do that yeah. feature, um, because it would actually have missed some kind of relatively good opportunity to gain more customers. Um, would that be something that you would next time maybe take into account um, in terms of uh, thinking, what could that feature do with, um, let's say, the media, um, or if it really becomes popular? Yeah. So the interesting thing is that um, 
this is a feature which is also closely collect, uh, connected to logistics capabilities. Mm -hmm. So therefore, we rolled it out uh, in an area of the city at, at, a, mm -hmm. at a specific delivery time. Mm -hmm. So what we learned now, and this is kind of the retrospective that we did, is that in specific areas, mm -hmm. in a specific co uh, consumer segment, this feature is indeed not that uh, not that uh, massive as a game changer. Interesting. What we did actually, and this is kind of the learning in the A-B test, we simply selected as our, our B group, mm -hmm. uh, a group or the A group, uh, however yeah. you see it, um, simply a group that uh, is not uh, so much uh, affected mm -hmm. by uh, this kind of feature. Yeah, yeah. So therefore, uh, the, our learning for this is we need to even think more, as let's say, stronger and more analytical, uh, more detailed about the kind of the A, B groups that mm -hmm. we are uh, selecting uh, for those kind of features. Okay. So the initial assumption is we can take any type of uh, group. We just need yeah, to yeah. Uh, we just take a subset of our consumers that is basically representative for the entire user mm -hmm. set and just look then to a logistic ability of mm -hmm. uh, implementing this feature. But uh, obviously there's a little bit more for the, yeah, yeah. For the next feature to, yeah. uh, to do here. Interesting. Um, one question, because you mentioned that it's some kind of feature that is heavily connected to logistics as well. Um, also to payments, because you may have to do follow-up payments, stuff like that. Um, how do you actually connect these teams? I mean, there is probably one team that is leading that feature. Um, how do you make sure that uh, dependencies to logistics, to payment, um, or to other teams in general are managed in a way that you also deliver a feature in time and not waiting because another team has a different priority, maybe um, just postponing it for, for later. Um, how is it organized? So there's probably two things that we learned over time, Sarah, and that, that became really important. So number one is um, what we saw over time is that the dependencies of user stories mm -hmm. between different kind of products mm -hmm. is just increasing. Mm -hmm. uh, had basically two reasons. Uh, features and uh, let's say user stories that we have been working on became a little bit more complex so therefore inherently uh, there was more dependencies between the products mm -hmm. and the second thing is basically um, and, and, and uh, as a conclusion of this uh, we uh, we introduced a new role, which we call mm -hmm. the cross-product project management role. Okay. Complex term, but basically yeah. what this means is we have somebody and team who mm -hmm. is uh, fulfilling an um, and a more traditional development leadership or development mm -hmm. project management mm -hmm. role for all user stories that are across products. So in this mm -hmm. case, for instance, that are spanning between uh, our shopping app and payment systems and the logistic mm -hmm. side. So this is one aspect, but the even more interesting aspect uh, what we learned there is that if you have a product team that you need in a regular intervals maintain basically the scope of your products yeah so what we do is we do in uh, at least uh, every three months uh, sometimes even more often look into the definition the scope definition of the mm -hmm. products mm -hmm. and try to identify for the next three or six or nine or twelve months mm -hmm. is the kind of the scoping of the product mm -hmm. does it ensure that we have the least possible cross-product dependencies mm -hmm. okay. because autonomy and yeah, um, yeah. let's say self-steering teams is something where what we're really striving for mm -hmm. and it can only be achieved by having a, a product scopes uh, defined in a way that the, the, the most user stories can uh, mm -hmm. can run in a single product okay i think um, rechecking the the scope of the product group is actually something that It's really interesting, yeah, because I, I would say um, from from what we see is, is is often the case that you said, oh, this is my team, that's it. Now I don't change it for 
a lot of time. Uh, um, but but rich tech, it's, it's pretty nice. Um, and this is not happening often. So this is yeah, this, this is something point. this yeah, is something what yeah. what uh, uh, I have not seen in many uh, many type yeah. of organizations. There is also a very important requirement for this. So this is. On the one hand, you need to have a culture so that mm -hmm. uh, you don't build too much mm -hmm. silos of, uh, uh, up and uh, that, uh, let's say, engineers are also willing to join from one to the other yeah, side yeah. because obviously if you draw the line a little bit different and somebody mm -hmm. has an expertise in an area and he would yeah. like to stay in this area, then he needs to move to another product team. This is one thing. The other thing, and it's, it's more on the recruitment side, mm -hmm. you need to actually, and the engineering leadership, you need to make sure that the kind of the tech stack and, mm -hmm. the, and, and the competencies that you build up in team and the mm -hmm. tech stack that you use across products is comparable. Mm -hmm. So that means uh, that you don't get a too wild west on the kind of the languages that you are using, yeah, yeah. the APIs that you are using, etc. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, you said one one important thing um, next to tech stack. Um, uh, that is actually uh, that you that your teams are acting autonomous. Um, how could I imagine that working? Is it something where, where let's say management or who is actually defining goals for the team? Yeah. Um, how how does it work? So. Um, we had we have done a couple of iterations over different models. So we have uh, tried over the last two to three years uh, to to implement an OKR type of model mm -hmm. uh, with different type of successes. Mm -hmm. uh, so company wide, it didn't uh, really work in the way as we wanted to see it. Mm -hmm. What we do now is we do basically a quarterly uh, planning, mm -hmm. and what we have there as kind of roles is. We have uh, each business teams mm -hmm. uh, have a representative uh, who we call the business owner. Mm -hmm. And then we have the product teams mm -hmm. that are actually uh, then uh, connecting to the, uh, yeah. to the business owners. Yeah, yeah. So basically the actual business case and the prioritization of mm -hmm. the business case and also the linking to mm -hmm. actually the company goals and the company KPIs is done by the business owner. Mm -hmm. okay. And the product owners are uh, typically uh, every business initiatives uh, can link to a couple of uh, mm -hmm. products. Then the product owners make sure that the respective functionalities get built up by mm -hmm. by the products for the respective mm -hmm. uh, business initiative. Okay, but that means uh, from from what I understood that um, the business um, owners are actually defining, let's say, a feature already, or what do they define, or do they just define? Um, we want to make uh, our logistics just faster um, or improve, let's say, delivery speed um, by 10%. It's a very, this is something, this is kind of a, uh, let's say, a setup there where we are also trying to find really our, mm -hmm. uh, our sweet spot. Uh, and that is not run for all business teams mm -hmm. in exactly the same way. So, what happens as an example for the more the consumer facing products? Mm -hmm. uh, and the consumer-facing initiatives. There you define um, what you called uh, the initiatives or the goals, more yeah, on yeah. the initiative and the goal level, and you leave up to the product teams mm -hmm. to actually come up with the respective features or the implementation and the, the concrete uh, user stories. While if you look more on the supply chain, fulfillment, logistical side, there you actually have to align uh, both the uh, digital side, so all the kind of the software yeah, products yeah. that we develop, with uh, also physical processes, mm -hmm. which are in the responsibility scope of the uh, business owners. Mm -hmm. So therefore, the business owner is usually already doing a significant part of defining the users, mm -hmm. uh, let's say the processes mm -hmm. that define or get, that end up as part of the specification for the um, okay. user stories. If, if a product owner is creating a user story, um, does he actually add some kind of information how that will contribute to the overall um, to the overall mission of, of, of Picnic? Um, or is that mainly done by we improve that KPI 
um, by X percent or, or something like that. So is it just KPI driven or is it some kind of, oh, we, we name it uh, in, in a sentence or two sentences um, to express it a little bit more understandable or um, defined for developer actually? Now, there, there are basically two things that are happening here. On the one hand, indeed, the user stories are defined in a way that also for developers, it becomes very clear what is the business impact of those uh, user stories. But every argumentation how in a specific KPI is improved uh, is actually the end result of an uh, uh, before executed analysis. Mm -hmm. So. Um, a pure argumentation or pure statement mm -hmm. well, that will improve 5% of retention yeah. uh, is actually meaningless. Mm -hmm. There needs to be an underlying reasoning mm -hmm. from uh, the prepared or the, the proposed initiative and the, the root, uh, through a kind of a root cause analysis why this will increase mm -hmm. uh, the retention, number one, and number two, why it will increase retention by 5%. Mm -hmm. okay. And uh, only then, if this kind of analysis is there, we will actually uh, start with this. Yeah. And this is something what we actually do very systematically now. What was, uh, which becomes important at the state where we, where the products have become much more mature. Mm -hmm. So the kind of the changes or the improvement steps that you can do there are no longer that drastic. So therefore, yeah. qualitative argumentation yeah. becomes less uh, less applicable in this case. Mm -hmm. How do you actually measure that then? I mean, you meant that A-B testing already. Um, so if you, if you do you use some kind of um, own build tooling there around, um, so do you use some kind of server-side A-B testing or how, how is it uh, working? So the, way, so the way how we have set it up is, is that uh, all the analytics, for instance, from the apps, but also from the uh, respective backend systems mm -hmm. are going into our data warehouse. Mm -hmm. And then we have, um, we're using Tableau where we build dashboards uh, okay. for basically every feature where yeah. we can uh, track not only how is group A versus group B mm -hmm. uh, uh, performing, but where we can also track over the long term uh, mm -hmm. those kind of features. Okay. Uh, the most important thing uh, in this respect is to understand which kind of consumer groups, which kind of uh, areas in a city, which kind of uh, type of uh, mm -hmm. households are actually uh, well, are actually affected or are actually impacted by a feature mm -hmm. in which way. Okay, great, thanks a lot for that. Um, one thing that you mentioned as well is silos. Um, so we saw it multiple times already that if you're, if you're having multiple teams that are working in parallel, um, people tend to think in their scope, in their silo, um, and they, they're becoming expert in, in their domain. Um, what's your experience with that? Did you experience it the same way? And then is there anything that you did against that, let's say? Yeah. So this is obviously uh, becoming a, a bigger or an increasing uh, challenge as you grow as a company. Mm -hmm. So when we're looking back to uh, 2015, team of uh, 30 people in total, 10 engineers, uh, everybody had lunch together. We had yeah. uh, two or three times per week we went uh, out together. So then uh, actually there was so much communication and we didn't need to, to formalize. So there was just no silo because mm -hmm. we didn't need to formalize any form of, uh, let's say, de-siloing uh, activities. What happens then uh, over time is um, on the one hand, indeed, you have the specialization, mm -hmm. but on the other hand, also because we you set up by intention autonomous teams mm -hmm. that basically also share scope. Let's say the scope where mm -hmm. they are working on. On the one hand, uh, by intention, but yeah, uh, yeah. becomes uh, simply smaller than it was before. Yeah, it's natural because simply the full scope becomes too big mm -hmm. then for uh, for for a single engineer. 
But uh, the question is a little bit on, uh, can you make sure that whatever an engineer needs to know from, let's say, every all the engineers that are around him, is he really aware of this? Mm -hmm. And we are have tackling this uh, through a couple of different initiatives. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, on the from the people side, we have introduced uh, the buddy and mentor program. Mm -hmm. So everybody has joined the onboarding and buddy, and then mm -hmm. a mentor, which is always coming from another product team where he is in regular okay. intervals uh, yeah, exchanging. Yeah but what they're mm -hmm. doing, etc. So this is one thing. But this is more kind of a people support structures mm -hmm. than actually a knowledge sharing structure. Then we have uh, an initiative which we call Lunch and Learn, mm -hmm. where uh, basically every other week mm -hmm. uh, we are uh, getting a presentation mm -hmm. over, uh, over lunch. So basically, uh, the team is lunching <laughs> and learning, yeah, yeah. and uh, one uh, one guy uh, simply simply makes a presentation. Yes, so we call it brown lunch actually. Exactly, yeah, exactly, so, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so then, then we have uh, something which is a little bit kind of a, a bigger format. We mm -hmm. call this the tech academies. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, lunch and learn are basically knowledge sharing about implementing mm -hmm. technology. So kind of running features or kind of recently implemented mm -hmm. implemented features, just making everybody aware of what has been implemented, what were the design principles, why uh, did we. Uh, for one for a or b mm -hmm. as a kind of an option in the implementation um, the tech academy is a more a broader initiative where we are looking more into fundamental technologies mm -hmm. so as an example is uh, we started on the uh, website with angular we mm -hmm. later moved in uh, for instance for our latest apps uh, to react yeah, so yeah. we looked into react versus flutter and the other options so mm -hmm. that is something where we actually had a quite a quite an intensive uh, mm -hmm. let's say cycle of uh, tech academy sessions where we discussed and presented mm -hmm. this and then we work a little bit with externals uh, to also uh, get a bit input from from outside. This is basically through meetups and uh, other sessions that we do inside the office. We just, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's say, we build around our own uh, tech team and kind of a community, uh, basically the entire uh, yeah, yeah. Dutch tech community. Okay, great. Um, you already said um, that tech academy part. Um, uh, is uh, So I understood it as this is your research lab a bit. Uh, mm -hmm. in terms of, okay, we want to try out or want to see what's out there. Um, is there some kind of technology that you are currently looking into? So something where you say, oh, that is somehow promising, um, that's maybe interesting. Um, so so is there some stuff on, on ongoing on the picnic side right now? So we, we looked into, basically, we experimented a little bit with, with different kind of uh, blockchain technologies mm -hmm. or with a different kind of, uh, on, on the side of machine learning, we have uh, tried quite a bit. Uh, the early stages of TensorFlow we went mm -hmm. uh, through is here. We also experimented quite a bit with Alexa and Google mm -hmm. Home with voice-based uh, technologies, which basically then mm -hmm. paid later became part of the product. But this, mm -hmm. is, uh, this is something which started from this kind of, R&D type of uh, sessions on yeah, yeah. the tech academy. Okay. Um, when we stay with the tech stack, so on what kind of tech stack could I imagine is Picnic running on? Yeah. So uh, on the front end side, uh, we have consumer facing uh, an Android and iOS. Mm -hmm. Both are uh, native. Uh, Android is basically half in uh, Java, half in Kotlin. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, for iOS, we uh, we started initially with Swift. So mm -hmm. Swift uh, started, I believe, 2013 or 14. Uh, we yeah, have yeah. been one uh, one of the first users of uh, Swift with Swift One. This was a time where actually uh, we knew that uh, Apple will definitely uh, stop with object supporting Objective C. Mm -hmm. However, uh, the Swift compiler was super buggy, so that was yeah. a, a pretty stressful <laughs> time uh, to get it uh, out of the door. Mm -hmm. On the back end side, uh, everything is uh, very much built around uh, Java stack. Mm -hmm. Uh, where we use um, also Spring Boot, uh, Spring yeah. 4, and um, Search is Elasticsearch, uh, okay. databases, MongoDB, Postgres, yeah, uh, yeah. RabbitMQ, so relatively, relatively default, uh, default stack. Okay. 
And on the infrastructure side, just to, to wrap it up, sir, uh, we are uh, actually married to uh, AWS. So that means uh, we have uh, started with AWS and uh, we are pretty much uh, using uh, uh, most of the services that are there. And then uh, we are using also now uh, Docker, um, mm -hmm. At Docker and Kubernetes, so we have uh, yeah, the EKS yeah. service uh, from Amazon. But you're using yeah. it as the managed case, so not exactly. setting up your own Kubernetes Correct. cluster? Okay. Yeah. We started initially, uh, mm -hmm. by the way, with uh, setting up our own uh, Kubernetes cluster. Mm -hmm. So this was uh, two years back, mm -hmm. simply because the EKS service was not available mm -hmm. in Ireland at this yeah, point in yeah, time. It yeah. uh, was pretty interesting time and also learning. But uh, at some point, that is something which you don't want to maintain yourself. Yep. So uh, we recently moved just to uh, Couldn't have said it better uh, because we, we also had a situation of setting up our own Kubernetes cluster because it was not yet available. Um, and uh, experience taught, uh, don't do that. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, if you have enough manpower and if there's sure. a good reason for that, okay. Yeah, but otherwise, um, uh, take the managed version. Uh, that definitely makes sense. Um, you said that you're using the, the Java stack, uh, mainly with Spring Boot, um, but you also said that parts of your Android application are written with Kotlin. Um, is there, or would you see any reason for also changing the, the Java stack in the future to Kotlin? Or, I mean, Kotlin provides some kind of additional features like immediate objects, stuff like that. Um, but is it something that you see helpful? Or is it also maybe also increasing the hurdle of finding people who are able to, to develop that yeah. language. So um, we started actually on the Android side with a pure Java stack. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, um, Kotlin became pretty popular and yeah, uh, yeah. We, we started to, to use it uh, also in, in, on the Android side. Mm -hmm. On the backend side, I know that there are there's a kind of a bigger community now building up uh, that actually promotes also Kotlin on the backend side. Mm -hmm. We have been looking a bit into this uh, during uh, those kind of tech academy sessions. Yes. Uh, so far, we didn't saw a very strong reason to uh, to move on the backend side to Kotlin. Yeah, yeah. In the same way, also we like uh, Scala or so, mm -hmm. which certainly has a couple of advantages, but also in our current, uh, let's say, with the current setup, the current team that we have, the current uh, competencies, yeah. um, there are a couple of downsides that uh, that make it not so easy for us to to add to this. Yeah, definitely. Um, because uh, the interesting thing, because you mentioned Scala, um, so we're venture to where we actually see they are using Scala. Um, they actually have huge problems to find people who can or speak uh, Scala. Now they are also trying to switch a bit to Java stack because uh, they expect to find better or find it yeah. uh, people this by the way this was exactly the reason yeah. why we started with uh, initially with Java mm -hmm. so we started in uh, uh, late 2014 mm -hmm. and it was a time where um, we actually uh, we wanted to stay on the JVM level but mm -hmm. uh, so but we looked a bit into Scala was super popular, uh, yeah, maybe yeah. even more popular uh, than now at this point in time. Yeah, maybe. But uh, uh, we saw that on the one hand, the, the uh, developer market is uh, very scarce. Yeah. And there have been, uh, especially around uh, Akka, etc., a uh, lot of let's say, lots of unknown. Mm -hmm. uh, so we didn't know exactly how this continues. So that was for us simply too risky. And if you start a company with a pretty big ambition in the beginning, you need a couple of things you can rely on initially. Yeah where you have a couple of, uh, where you just uh, have a few stable factors. And that was for us, number one, a team. So that mm -hmm. means uh, the kind of the tech team uh, that, uh, that I hired around me mm -hmm. was basically people that I worked with uh, beforehand. Mm -hmm. So the first uh, five people I worked for uh, more than five years uh, together yeah, yeah. with them. Uh, so that was a kind of a very stable factor. In the same way, also the tech stack uh, is something we have worked all together already mm -hmm. before and with. So that gave much more stability in the beginning uh, yeah, yeah. than uh, 
And we could focus more on the really uh, unknowns. This is disappointing. I mean, you don't want to learn a new language and develop a new company. Yeah, so this sure. is actually not working. Mm -hmm. um, if we speak about architecture, um, you mentioned already Spring Spring Boot, but if we speak about the architecture of the application or the products itself, um, I mean, the app, of course, is some kind of loosely coupled, uh, connected via APIs. Um, but how do your applications within the whole picnic system actually work together? Yeah, so we, we started uh, initially uh, for the simple reason of for the reason of simplicity and uh, also development speed with uh, pretty much a kind of a monolith, mm -hmm. which was maybe not even so much uh, a design choice, but mm -hmm. it was more kind of a practicality. Mm -hmm. What we learned over time is that this has been a pretty smart choice mm -hmm. uh, at a point where you really need to figure out first your business and your operational model because yeah, yeah. you have so drastic changes that any form of microservice, API first mm -hmm. design, etc. is just unrealistic if you just don't know what to build. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, much simpler. One repo, one uh, build artifact, that's yeah, it. That's it. So um, over time, obviously, you learn a little bit better what is, uh, what is your uh, core functionality and uh, some stuff becomes much more stable uh, mm -hmm. where you really get a better understanding uh, of what is your architecture, what becomes the modules, mm -hmm. uh, what should become a microservice, what is a reasonable and sensible API. As an example, um, for us, where we do uh, as a core proposition a next day delivery model, we have um, all the customers are placing orders until 10 o'clock and then we do basically the entire planning for the next day. Mm -hmm. So that means uh, basically the route planning, but also yeah, the yeah. warehouse planning and the stuff planning, etc. This is something which is a master planning process, mm -hmm. a very relatively standard process by now. So that became one of the first kind of modules that mm -hmm. we factored out in, in a microservice. Yeah. And then many other kind of modules yeah, uh, yeah. followed uh, from this. And by now we are, we call this a kind of a meso-service uh, for, for lack of a good name. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it is, it is definitely not a microservice in the Netflix mm -hmm. sense of uh, having 800, uh, uh, 800 microservices and uh, full resilience. But on the other hand, it is definitely not a monolith. So mm -hmm. we are now in the range of uh, around 30 micro, yeah, micro yeah. or meso-services, yeah, yeah, yeah. which are relatively well uh, captured. And mm -hmm. uh, we feel relatively comfortable with this kind of uh, structure. Yeah. Um, and these uh, services actually communicate via APIs or via some kind of event-driven approaches, queues. Um, so what is um, behind? So basically, uh, everything what is, is what requires synchronous uh, communication mm -hmm. is uh, REST-based APIs. Mm -hmm while uh, everything what is more asynchronous communication where you don't need immediately uh, a response on, mm -hmm. uh, on, on, on the API call, we have a bus architecture where we work mm -hmm. with a RabbitMQ. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, bus architecture in terms of uh, like PubSub approach or really um, creating topics, exchanges, and then whoever is interested can just- Topics and exchanges okay. uh, on, on RabbitMQ. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, have you already experienced any performance issues with RabbitMQ? Uh, because I mean, it's, it's quite performant, um, but I also heard uh, people saying, okay, if you run it in, in some kind of clustered mode, um, then you can get problems, um, but- so there are basically so there are basically there are basically two things on on, on the architectural side uh, that uh, we did on the design side. Um, number one is um, all the asynchronous communication that we do between the services mm -hmm. are usually not that time critical. So mm -hmm. therefore, okay. uh, let's say volume and timeliness mm -hmm. is is less less a critical thing. The second thing is uh, we started with a self-hosted or self-deployed mm -hmm. uh, RabbitMQ deployment, mm -hmm. while later we moved to uh, Cloud MPQ, mm -hmm. which is basically the cloud okay. uh, uh, yeah. version uh, cloud deployments here, which uh, allows basic elasticity out of the box. Mm -hmm. uh, so that works relatively well for us. So okay. we don't have uh, any big issue. Yeah, yeah. The interesting thing on the other hand is that 
even if we have uh, even uh, from the fact derived uh, that we have a pretty large order volume now the actual size uh, that you need to deploy uh, such a business proposition is not that big mm -hmm. so that uh, was something what I found also a little yeah, bit surprising because we have been in the company before where we built a recommendation engine we have been uh, actually uh, the second largest uh, AWS user in Europe uh, with mm -hmm. a little bit more than 3000 servers mm -hmm. well now we are uh, well, uh, more than an order of ma magnitude uh, smaller uh, what we are yeah, now yeah, using. Yeah. So that is more in the range of 100 servers or okay. a little bit less. Uh, so that is uh, <laughs> significantly smaller. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, if, we, if I come from the development side of, of that perspective, um, you said, okay, you're running Kubernetes cluster. Um, uh, how do developers actually develop in your system, um, so are they able to spin up parts of the, the stack on your the local machine? Do you have some kind of dedicated development clusters where people actually can try out things or even develop there? We uh, so all developers can work locally on their machines, so mm -hmm. they can uh, basically uh, boot the entire uh, the entire platform mm -hmm. uh, on their local uh, servers. Mm -hmm. We have built up a CI/CD um, pipeline mm -hmm. where actually uh, you make uh, auto deploy whenever you uh, move to. A, master or to the build branch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, and uh, that means uh, that whole 30 services that you mentioned, that is what you actually spin up on your local machine or be able to spin yeah, up. Exactly. Yeah, okay. exactly, okay. So uh, the, the most important thing is, uh, and that is something what we are looking into, especially mm -hmm. for uh, for the product teams, is that they can work uh, as much as possible um, just spinning up their own mm -hmm. services, uh, that they don't have to spin up uh, mm -hmm. the entire platform. Yeah, yeah. As an example, uh, if you work, for instance, on a consumer-facing product, the only thing what you need is you need to, uh, as a kind of interfacing service, you need to, uh, yeah. you need to have the product, the prices, mm -hmm. and the assortment. Yeah, yeah. But uh, everything what is on the uh, root planning, for instance, mm -hmm. is not needed in order to uh, bootstrap or launch the yeah, yeah. Okay, um, and maybe one, one last question to that topic. Um, how do you actually provide developers with the data that you mentioned? I mean, you probably have a lot of articles, uh, a lot of prices, a lot of information, um, all of that running on a local environment or getting the data from somewhere. Do you use a subset of data or? Yeah, now what we do is we do in regular intervals, uh, build basically an uh, extract from uh, mm -hmm. the port data mm -hmm. uh, that it's uh, still representative for the port data. Yeah. And then we apply a simple basically two me uh, methods on it. Uh, number one, sampling, mm -hmm. to make it smaller, uh, yeah. and then uh, anonymization, that everything what is uh, personally identifiable uh, is out of the data. And that is basically okay. the set that uh, developers are using. Yeah, okay. And then you said um, using CI-CD uh, pipelines, um, what kind of tooling are you using there? Um, some kind now of it starts with uh, starts with, uh, uh, with GitHub, where we, mm -hmm. uh, where we actually have our source code, and then Travis CI, mm -hmm. Which is, by the way, also Berlin-based. Yeah. <laughs> so that's uh, that's pretty cool. And yeah. then, uh, and then basically we deployed uh, directly uh, to uh, to AWS. Okay. And this is then uh, um, are you using some kind of uh, or I, the deployment to to Kubernetes itself? Um, is it something that is actually using where? changing the deployment itself or using some kind of Helm stuff um, in addition to that? Um, we are using Helm also yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, to actually make the deployment to yeah, Kubernetes, yeah. correct. Okay, great. Um, okay, um, so we're coming closer to the end of that session already. Um, I have uh, some, some small questions um, still left. Um, and uh, one thing is, imagine the case with that experience that you made over the last uh, years um, and you would now start the same business from scratch. Is that something that you would actually do completely different? Yeah, that, that's a very interesting question. And uh, that is uh, something which obviously, if you reflect a little bit yourself uh, uh, about your own journey, uh, you can ask. 
This is becoming, to be frank, a little bit of kind of a meaningless question at the point because you are just much smarter after the process. So therefore, therefore, uh, even if you would do things now different, uh, you mm-hmm. would not have done uh, because you simply didn't know. I think if you, if you are, if you can be happy about the journey that you have made, mm-hmm. uh, when the only thing what you would la- have liked to make in the past to do things earlier. Mm-hmm. So there are a couple of things where I had a gut feeling that we should move that we should do a reorg in, a, mm-hmm. in, in the company or that we should uh, simply start with a new technology a little bit mm-hmm. earlier than uh, we actually later did so this is something i later would now in retrospective say well we should have done a bit uh, mm-hmm. earlier and uh, that is probably also a bit the learning that we have now it's super exciting to go through the kind of uh, the phase that we have uh, mm-hmm. done uh, uh, starting a proposition having significant more demand for a service than we, yeah. that we could actually initially uh, deliver. So therefore, actually being more busy on uh, ramping up mm-hmm. capacity, including physical capacity, and not, uh, let's say, hunting for customers, what yeah, is the yeah. normal uh, business building phase. But uh, in this kind of uh, journey, um, you may, may, mainly you just need to enjoy the ride and mm-hmm. uh, simply uh, learn as much as, uh, as you yeah. can. And don't stay humble. I think yeah, that's yeah. the most important thing. Is there something that you would say this is the most valuable learning or is it more like you said just now about it's enjoying the ride, but is there some kind of outstanding thing where you say, oh, that was really, really helpful um, to, to learn maybe for the future or? Yeah, there are, pro- there are probably many, many things uh, that, that we learned uh, along the journey. Uh, and the really interesting part is that because they found, let's say, everybody who, who started the company has never mm-hmm. worked in such a kind of a organization mm-hmm. or of organization of this size. So yeah. therefore, it's for us all uh, pretty much a learning journey. What is uh, probably one of the really interesting learnings is that the people aspects, mm-hmm. especially how you organize your organization, mm-hmm. how do you how do you organize a learning and development mm-hmm. is something what is what is uh, what really becomes much more important as you mm-hmm. as you grow as an organization. If you're if you're a startup with, uh, with five, seven, uh, ten engineers, uh, then uh, you will not uh, build too big uh, kind of learning and development programs. Yeah, yeah. But if you are a little bit bigger, then uh, engineers come on board, uh, which just see the let's say the uh, the, the bigger size, mm-hmm. which also come up with uh, or which have just a different expectation uh, mm-hmm. of what you provide as an employer. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you very much for your time. It was really interesting to uh, listening to you. Um, maybe do that next year again yeah, to see how that develop actually how the journey developed so I would be pretty interested I have a lot would of love more to. questions yeah, yeah definitely um, so thanks a lot for being here um, and um, yeah yeah thanks for having me